Welcome to episode 96 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. On today's show, we're chatting with Sean Murphy, who's founder and owner of SK Murphy, a consultancy who helps software startups pivot from a technology development focus to a customer development focus. Hi, Sean, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So, Sean, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about your educational professional background um, and how you got into working with uh, startups? And that way we can just sort of have a context to get things going. Yeah, I actually I was actually in a startup in college that was a few years ago now. Woodruff and Murphy Decision Systems Associates, and we were developing custom applications for uh, different people that needed to track special ed uh, needs. We did a we did a application that did antenna design for uh, companies longer in business, and a few other uh, mortgage calculators. This was in the 80s, so this was this was kind of the the PC and the and the PC revolution was just coming. And I had a graduated from Stanford um, with a degree they no longer give called Engineering Economic Systems. It's been rolled into their management science offering now. And I worked in semiconductors. I worked in uh, risk management, got into networking, and did uh, engineering till the early 90s. And then I moved over to, to marketing and did um, product marketing at Cisco for their uh, iOS and then uh, network design tools. So I've always been kind of on product teams in large companies. Well, what what made you move from say the technical side to the more the, to the marketing side? I guess I misspoke. I had actually done customer support and marketing at a couple startups in the '80s as well. That were uh, an, an EDA startup called Serverlisco. I would actually back then when you wanted to deliver software, you got in your car with a tape and drove to the guy's business, <laughs> and uh, so. So that wow. was my job. I was that was the uh, what, what, what do we call it now? We call it sneaker net now, I guess. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> do you think that it was easier to make money in the eighties than it is now, or do you think it's easier now? As a startup, there was just so little information and so little understanding. Silverlisco, the the EDA startup, ultimately raised money um, from from a couple of rounds, but but the level of sophistication on the entrepreneur side, it, there just wasn't nearly the amount of information that there is now. I think it's. In some ways, it's it's um, it's easier now to at least understand what's involved. Yeah, I'm just thinking about that. I mean, back then, so so Woodruff and Murphy, I think it cost six thousand dollars to fully equip an Apple II, which was not a particularly powerful machine, right? That's um, right. And that included the upgrade, so you could get eighty video display that was eighty characters wide, right? And I remember a, T, a T1 connection was many thousands of dollars. Oh, oh T, yeah, T1 was was was. So there was no there we there was no. I mean, it was dial up, right? There was no. I mean, to right. download a megabyte of information, you were going go get a cup of coffee and wait 20 minutes. Oh, I guess I'm thinking about the 90s even. Like, so 80s yeah. were really... <laughs> so what did your 90s look like? What were you doing in the 90s coming up to 2000? So I, wor- I, I went to Cisco in the early 90s, right after they went public, and worked in engineering, and then I moved over to marketing, and then I got involved in the dot-com, early dot-com stuff from about 94 to 98, worked with some early companies, and then went to uh, MMC Networks, which was a, a network processor company, and then ended up back at Cisco doing um, initially marketing and then um, a variety of things inside. I was kind of a jack of all trades. I worked in offer integration. Cisco was, was really hot stuff back then, right? I mean, they were like, doubling every year. The stock was splitting every year. It was like, it was like the, the, the way that we think of, the way that people have the excitement of a, of a company like Facebook or Google today was what Cisco was like back then. Yes, yes, it was it was completely nuts. When when I went there there might have been 60 people in engineering within two and a half years there were 500. 
<laughs> right. I was, I, I was, I worked for the VP of engineering and I had to think a staff of two and I had a staff of 40 within two years. So when you first got there, you probably knew everybody in engineering, but within two and a half years, you probably didn't even recognize most of the faces. Yeah, I, I think the thing, and I can't speak to what it was like at Facebook. I think one of the things, and I'd come from 3Com, which was a competitor. One of the things that Cisco had was a real willingness to really um, experiment and to take risks and to move forward. And there was a sense of, we're going to make it happen, right? And and. It, it just a lot of things got done that um, um, it was just it was still even though it was public it had this sense of a startup where where it was just really a lot of things happened we did a lot of um, moved a lot of process online that um, later on um, kind of got set in stone when I went back in '98 I realized that a lot of the problems that were there were the result of the successes of things I'd worked on. <laughs> in the early '90s, right? That they were now you had to, we had to kind of redesign for what was going on. Um, we we also leveraged a lot of outside people, and that's that was the other thing was um, we we would work with a lot of small vendors outside, and a lot of our innovation was the ability to successfully kind of assess and adopt outside technology, either as a direct part of the product or as a part of um, internal process and workflows. Um, so was there, was there like a, a defining moment during the, this period where you thought, okay, now I'm going to set up SK Murphy? And, and what was that and what kind of drove you towards moving into the consultancy? So in 2002, 2003, things kind of slowed down. And we had stepped on the, we had stepped on the gas and then they had a, a large layoff. Um, and it became a different company, and I just um, and I and this thought, is this is when you were at Cisco, right? We're yes, yes, about? yes. Okay. Two thousand two, um, and and I said, you know, I ought to take a year and figure out how I want to exit this. What skills do I want to build? But I, I liked working in the startup environments, and there was just this this changeover in mindset that. Um, the stock had gone from I think eighty to sixteen. I mean, it was the it had just cratered, right? Market cap had gone from half a trillion dollars to a hundred billion, and uh, there was just this this kind of this loss of something that it was a very different place to work. And I like working with startups. I had done a lot of work um, doing best practices um, work where we'd done eighty acquisitions, and I'd been part of some of the acquisitions. And I like working with the acquisitions and like working with the smaller teams. And um, it ended up in 2003, I knew some a couple different entrepreneurs that were just, you know, the recession, that, that particular, the dot-com recession was just um, still hitting them pretty heavily in Silicon Valley. And so I went to them to try and help them sell their product. And that's, that's how I got started. And I just I realized this could become a kind of a consulting practice. I kind of backed into it, I guess. It's kind of a weird market because they are kind of like, I guess, consultancy costs and people at that level of startup don't have lots of money. So how does that kind of work? How do those two things jump? Well, so so it was my intent from the beginning to to be able to work with bootstrappers and to um, to understand that they needed predictable expenses that were that were relatively modest and so we organized to 
um, support a number of clients at once. And we're working with anywhere from eight to 12 um, different clients at once. Um, so we're not kind of, we're not really interim staffing. The most that we'll, that we'll tend to do is a day a week with one client. And typically it's much less than that because, because they don't, they don't necessarily need that much help or they need the right kind of help. We, um, we, we work with them in wikis. We do, uh, we have online workspaces. We do a lot with people in Skype chat and in wiki. So we're kind of instantly on instantly available. The work in process is all there for them to see. So we become an extension of their staff and we pull in, we've got another probably dozen people. We pull in with different talents, copy editors and writers and, and, uh, naming experts and different kinds of people. So, so what this, what, what the bootstrappers need is they need kind of fractional talent. I think a lot of consultants, um, focus at least in Silicon Valley on what you call the Silicon Valley 160, 150 or the venture ecosystem, which is more of an interim staffing model where you have two or three clients. We set up in the beginning to really be able to handle eight, 12, 16 at once, um, we've done a lot of things so that so that our work process becomes seamless with theirs. We do everything in online workspaces. Um, use a lot of uh, Skype so that if I'm in the office, so to speak, they can send me a quick text or or a lot of questions could get answered um, quickly. Um, we're iterating on whether it's negotiation preparation or presentations or or these kind of things. So so we become an extension of the team, but in a, in a different way. For the most part, a lot of these folks don't necessarily even have offices as well. They're working in, in virtual environments. They're increasingly now global. Um, probably uh, half or two-thirds of our clients are in Silicon Valley and then maybe another a third are in the U.S. and then a sixth are worldwide. We support folks in in Denmark doing computational chemistry and and uh, Singapore and and Beijing and other places. Well, uh, what are the sizes of the companies that you normally work with? So, so it's typically two to five engineers or scientists that that have. Um, worked on some advanced technology, typically in a larger company, and are now um, going through the process of trying to, to learn how to sell that. And okay. um, sometimes we help them find different markets. Sometimes we help them figure out um, how, how to value what they're doing and how to negotiate to get that value, how to present it in the best light. Right. And now, but are these companies, do they normally have some kind of funding or, or you know, even angel funding? Because I'm wondering how can these small companies afford an actual consultancy? So, so for the most part, our, our rates are anywhere from $500 a, a quarter to a thousand or $2,000 a month, which is, which I, which is still a lot of money for, for most firms, but not, not what you would think of as paying an outside consultant. Um, yeah, I was, cause I was almost thinking it'd be like hiring a law firm, in which case it would be, you know, almost out of the range of most startups unless so, they were VC funded so or something. we don't. We don't build like a law firm. We we for the most part we have a couple different relationships, but for the most part it's on a it's on a fixed price per month basis, um, where our expense is predictable and we're helping them on a variety of projects. There's projects identified or needs are identified, 
Um, I don't have a chess clock next to my phone where as soon as they call me, I punch it, and now every six minutes I've made another $47 away. Some attorneys do. It seems like $500 a month is very reasonable. What what kind of service could people expect for that kind of money? I mean, so 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 that's typically worth about four to six hours a month. Uh, that that allows you to to do phone calls. If you're in Silicon Valley, we'll have a face to face meeting. Typically, it's rehearsal for presentations. It's negotiation preparation. It's actually you're in the middle of a negotiation. You're you're trying to um, either prepare some kind of um, sales presentation or you've got an email you're crafting, you're putting together an offer of some sort to a target set of prospects. Um, there's a whole bunch of things that happen between the time you, you have the product and you actually have a customer's money. And, and we get involved somewhat in the roadmap and somewhat in the feature planning, but for the most part, we're trying to help them target and then close business with... Um, other businesses. So we, we, we primarily help them uh, in the B2B space. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess I'd be curious, like how many startups have you worked with up to this point? Um, you know, I don't have an exact number. It's, it's, it's certainly um, in some level, it's, it's probably more than 200 since we've been at it since, since 2003. Some folks will do one or two sessions. Some folks were actually still working with for a number of years. Just to finish off uh, Justin's initial question of, you know, what your what a customer would get or client would get for five hundred dollars a month. So at the higher end of a couple couple grand a month, uh, what other additional things are you doing for them? Uh, is it just that they have more time that they can access? Or so typically they're working on more than one deal. We're we're we may be preparing to go to a trade show. The 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 price point. So there's an initial price point they may be. Uh, willing to accept for an early deal that may be a few thousand dollars. They're typically selling, um, working on deals in the twenty-five thousand to quarter of a million dollar range, and so mm-hmm. they're up against. It's it's an orchestrated sale. They're they're negotiating with multiple people on the other side. Um, it may be a situation they haven't been in them been in themselves before. So. Um, the the higher dollars tend to go with either we're working more more than one deal at once or we're preparing to go to a trade show or we're preparing to step up the um, visibility. It, it sort of reminds the kind of advice you're giving sort of reminds me of what um, VCs like to like to sell themselves as offering. So like you know so VC will say well you're not just taking our money you're taking our expertise and we'll help you and we'll give you all kind of advice when you're trying to land big contracts or get more. F- funding or create strategic partnerships or, you know, hiring, you know, uh, management talent. And, and it, it almost sounds like you provide a lot of the things that big VCs, I don't know if they offer, or at least they say that they, they give the impression that they would offer. I mean, is that right? So I think, uh, uh so I think the particular thing that, that, I've done and my partners have done is we've brought technology into larger firms. So we understand what that looks like for somebody who's essentially a change agent in a larger firm has to go through to take to be the first or second or fourth customer for a new technology firm. Um, I think VCs bring uh, more to the picture. Um, We typically don't get involved with staffing. The VCs will. We have done 
us. We've helped on occasion interview because because we've got both business and technical backgrounds. We can help a team of two or three engineers bring on a real business guy. And in a couple of cases, we've actually helped them hire their first marketing or business development person. Sometimes we've got teams that are business heavy that are looking to bring on a technology guy, and we're able to help them find somebody like that and we've, we've gone both ways there the vcs have a much richer rolodex i wouldn't look at myself as as um an alternative to the kind of things that they offer if you were to go to kp or sequoia so it sounds like that your your um, practice is more relevant to people moving into pretty much an enterprise space rather than some of the consumer-based startups that you might get out of YC Combinator, for example. Yeah, we, so we've talked to several of the YC guys that, have, that are targeting business, um, but not, none are clients. Um, they tend to... Uh, so, so our focus is really um, two to five engineers or scientists who've got working technology. They've come out of the relevant discipline and they're trying to sell to businesses. It may be small, medium business. It may be larger businesses. But it's a business-to-business sale. And um, there's typically more than one decision-maker involved on the buy side, either because it involves some kind of work group facilitation or process facilitation. or uh, The software is supporting not just one person, but a, a work group or a process. Um, so actually it sounds like, because one of the things we, we said we were going to talk about in this show although not necessarily just yet, but it does, I, I can see why Apignite kind of fits with you much better than something like Plugio. Um, Apignite is exactly the kind of thing you're talking about, really. Yeah, and I think, I think we should, I think there's a lot of ways to look at what, what that technology platform could do. Um, and I think there's opportunities for it, both in small, medium businesses and in, um, and in larger firms. Since you've started uh, in, in 2000 with this consultancy, working with businesses in this way, has, the, has it essentially been the same strategy and the same viewpoints for the last 10 years, or has new technology changed that those strategies? So so, so I, we really didn't start till about 2003. I, I think there's been a lot of change. I think we saw some things coming. Um, I think I've gotten um, better at it in some ways. still have a lot to learn. Um, <laughs> the, the, the thing that was very clear, because I had done stuff earlier was that the price, the cost of doing a startup for, for most verticals was, was just plummeting, right? If you wanted to do a web startup in 1997 versus 2004, I mean, it was probably one-tenth or one-twentieth the cost, right? And now it's probably one-one-hundredth or one-one-thousandth. Um, hmm. Semiconductor startups have gotten much more expensive because of mass costs and a few other things. But for but a lot, but most of your software startups are uh, the, the problem is not that the technology cost does not dominate the equation, right? And so that means that there's more of a premium on being able to find your early customers and actually get traction and get going. You, you, you face a lot more competitors because the process of starting the company is cheaper. If that makes sense. Hmm. Right. So my a question I'd like to ask is, you know, in, in working with these startups, you've developed a particular analytical framework for trying to understand uh, their business and how it needs to move forward. And so I'd like to I'd like it if you could um, maybe explain that framework to us and also explain what particular insights it uh, it offers. So I, I think we we tend to look for disruptive technologies or ways that that a solution can be applied disruptively to 
uh, a particular problem or new problem, right? A lot of times um, we'll encourage folks to move to an adjacent market where there's either less competition or the delta between the status quo and what they offer is higher, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times we are really looking for to be the first level of automation where, where, we're, where we're bringing changes in manual process. And I now count Microsoft Word and Excel as fundamentally manual processes. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and okay. Yeah. The the other thing is there's a, there's there's a lot of kind of boiled frogs. There's the story about you put the water you put the frog in the water pot and you turn the water heat up slowly it doesn't jump out it gets boiled right. A lot of verticals have become content with with poor IT performance for want of a better word right. In particular, medical, um, legal services automation. Um, K-12 education, education broadly, right? I mean, these are poorly served, right, compared to, I mean, I can get better tracking on a book I buy from Amazon than a blood sample at my doctor's, right? Right. (laughs) And I care a lot, I care a lot more about the one than the other. Sure. Although Kaiser Permanente are pretty good. Yes, they are. They are. (laughs) They are. And, and, and that still looks like mainframe technology. Yeah. Right. Well, okay. So, you know, I, I guess it'd be interesting to find out then is who are the, who are sort of the thinkers in this field that, that sort of, I don't know, um, were the ones that influenced you most? Cause it, some of the stuff you sa- you talk about sounds a little bit like, was it Clayton Christensen? And sure, the sure, Dilemma? sure. So, and some so, of it, was the guy who wrote, uh, Crossing the Chasm, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Moore, Jeffrey Moore. I mean, so, or, the the more the original Moore book is 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 and actually I I've given a talk a couple times on uh, twelve great marketing books for the CEO Silicon Valley CEO, um so I so yeah so so I remember reading Crossing the Chasm when it first came out and going oh my God this is what I've been doing I I mean he just had an organizing paradigm that was was kind of eye-opening. Same thing reading Christensen's um, Innovator's Dilemma, right? He had just, he kind of organized what was happening in a way that, that you're kind of in the middle of the, pa- when you're in the middle of a pattern, it's hard to see the pattern, right? Sure. Same thing for Steve Blank with his Four Steps Epiphany. So, so to, to, I guess to me, Drucker's probably got a dozen books out there that even though they're now 25, 30 years old are, are surprisingly applicable. Um, certainly uh, Jeffrey Moore's Inside the Tornado, Crossing the Chasm, Steve Blank's Four Steps to Epiphany. Christensen's got several. Innovator's Dilemma is a good place to start. These are all, um, and whether you're bootstrapping or going for funding, this is the, the, these are really good books on, on learning about innovation. On skmurphy.com, yes. you, ha- you have um, some really good information about startup stages. You, you talk about the five stages of, of the startup. I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of insight into that. So this was derived just by just by kind of watching this natural life cycle of a bunch of bootstrappers, right? And so initially you've got kind of an idea, you've got you've got you've got a possibility and you've got to go through some formation process. You've got to allocate, you've got to kind of divide up the pie and figure it out if there's a market and and you're kind of iterating between between should we really commit to this uh, and if we do, then who's in, who's out, and how do we divide things up? Um, and that's the kind of the idea formation stage. At some point, you've done your low-cost market exploration. You've talked to maybe 20, 30 people. 
you've you've got some idea of what's out there, you formally incorporate and you're able to actually do business and now it takes you longer than you might think to actually get business. Um, and then the stage three is you've got early customers, your first maybe six customers, um, three to six. Sometimes some of these folks are people that you knew before you started or friends of friends. And you and then you start to figure out here's our first niche, here's our here's where we're gonna focus, where we're actually getting some traction. So stage four is kind of finding your your niche or finding your first niche. And at some point you start to be able to reliably and repeatedly sell to at least a category of customer or a targeted customer. And now you can start to think about scaling up, right? Hiring real employees, you're either fractional or full time. Um, and that's what's known now as sort of as product market fit, right? Yeah, the 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 I I'm not a huge fan of the product market fit hypothesis, and and um, the Andreessen formulated a couple years ago. He took the blog post down. His partner kind of um, backed away from it. I look I look at I look at it more as a relative fitness. Um, metric that kind of changes as the landscape changes, right? I mean, as as the market evolves, what was a product market fit 18 months ago? The the customers um, new. You may have new entrants. You may have changes in technology. I, I don't look at it as this trap door that you're suddenly able to find the door to product market fit and then suddenly you skyrocket. Most of the people that tell the story that way, um, I think, are leaving a lot out of the story, right? Right. I don't. I don't. Which happens in a lot of stories, right? They get so simplified that they lose a lot of their value. Um, people remember them because they're simple, but they're not really true. So, so, in some of your podcasts, right? People talk about that moment where suddenly it all became clear. I don't. I, I think maybe that's the way we remember it. I'm not sure. It. It. I mean, I, I think a lot of times what'll happen is you'll 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 stop doing things that were holding you back, but that's different from somehow securing a. Um, a product market fit. I mean, Cisco in in when I went there in 1990, right? Arguably had product market fit. Wellfleet was hot on their tail. Had in some ways better products for years. I can remember Mortgage giving a talk that was very motivating in like 1993 or so to the Salesforce where he said, you know, I, I need your help. These guys are pressing us, right? And and when we look back, of course, it was just all one smooth rocket ride, right? Sure. But I don't. I don't think it was that way. I'm, I guess I'm not. A, I, I don't. I, I think that that there's a couple of con, there's a couple of phrases or concepts that get thrown around out there that are actually very unhelpful. And I think product market fit being modeled as a binary variable is um, is toxic. Well, I, actually, I'd love to hear a couple more of those, but I interrupted you. You were talking about the five stages. No. So the final stage is scale up, where you're actually you've got. You've got some amount of traction. You've you've got a you've got a business model that you understand how you can invest in that you can scale up, and that may be either through organic growth or that at that point you may want to seek funding because you've actually got something that you that's proven. That's interesting because basically, I can see that Jason's on stage two, the the open for business stage, just getting into that stage, and I've I've just gone through the finding your niche stage because having uh, basically called up and spoken to 20 customers, people who are actually paying for Plugio. Now I, I kind of understand what the market is and I've remodeled the site to focus on that market. So now it's just essentially reaching out to that market. 
Right, and at some point, if you if you develop message, if you understand how to target, if you understand what message works, you know you've got the right features to support the benefits you're promising. Then you can scale up either either through internal growth or by seeking outside funding. But to but to seek it earlier, um, I, I think is is sometimes premature, right? <laughs> Well, can we can we jump back? You said you had a couple other examples of I don't know um, I don't know if they're if they're phrases or whatever that are no. So 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 the product market fit I think is I think is one thing. I think in the B two B space, asking your customers if they'll be disappointed if they can't use your product anymore is very destructive of a potential relationship, and it's just not the way to phrase the question at all. Because right. it casts doubt on your commitment to the business, and the and the number one fear, if I'm working in the company, kind of starting to think about putting a little bit of my career on the line to bring you in, and you look like you're shaky, then I don't want to put a dent in my career for no reason, right? I mean, right. You, you've got to be committed to to what you're doing to get people to take risks to help you out. So and. And just to clarify for our listeners, so when you talk about asking um, your customer if they would be disappointed if you could ignore your product, that's part of what Sean Ellis is. Sean Ellis is the, he's one of these big proponents of the product market fit concept, and he has a survey which includes questions like that, which is trying to determine whether you have product market fit by asking questions like that. And that that's right. That's what you're referring to? Yeah, I think I think that... that- Perhaps in a consumer market where you can throw away a lot of customers, um, that may make sense. We don't do a lot of work in that market. I can't speak how applicable it is. But in a B2B market, it's a particularly bad idea. Right, right. Are there any, any other ones? I, that's, I find that, that, that kind of stuff interesting. Because, <laughs> you know, we, we, our, our brains kind of get fixated on a few different concepts these, that, we, that are easy to remember. They seem like they make a lot of sense. And then we start basing our decisions on them, sometimes without even realizing it, and when in fact they're actually... Yeah, because I know you've brought that up quite a lot, Jason. Product market fit? Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, you, you, you read some of this stuff, it makes a lot of sense. You know, the, the, a lot of the big thinkers in the field seem to be talking and blogging about it. And you're like, well, this seems to be something we need to be thinking about or aiming so, for. So I, I, I think the concept is a good one. I think it's, I think it's a fraction. I, think, I, th- I don't think it's a zero-one. I don't think it's a trapdoor. I think it's a, it's a relative fitness. It's a relative competitive advantage. I'm not, so I'm not against the idea of some level of product market fit, but I, but I don't think you ever get to one. I think sure. that things keep changing. Truth right. lies in the middle, as always. No, no and, and, and you've always got competition. You're not, you know, it's just you don't ever knock down everything that's around you, right? Yeah, and if you do, it grows right back up really quickly. Well, the, there's the, the, right. <laughs> the axis of competition changes, right? Sure. I mean, well, that's I mean, what, as, as Microsoft found, you know, right? I mean, they, they crushed a lot of their competitors, but it didn't stop, you know, companies like Google and uh, Facebook and these other companies from rising up and challenging them, like you said, in completely different ways. So once you're somewhere around 60-70% market share, it tends to get very hard to go higher because your customers resist it. I mean, there's just right. very few very few winner-take-all markets. Well, there's like this, there's a natural sort of contrarianism, you know, like when stuff becomes too prevalent, there's a certain fraction of society that just doesn't want to embrace it because everybody's embracing it, right? Well, is it like, like familiarity breeds contempt kind of thing? No, I think... I. I, I think it's in the nature of 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 how technology evolves, right? 
I mean, some things we agree to drive on the right side of the road because that's a standard that makes sense. We agree to use 110 volts in our outlets because that makes sense. So some things you get lock on, right? For better or worse, we've got a lock on on typewriter keyboard design, right? But the, where you tend to get standards and lock on, you that tends to get brutally commoditized then. Right. It right. doesn't you don't ten, what what tends to get hundred percent adoption tends to be completely commoditized. Right. Okay. So it's it's difficult to it's difficult to do both. I I, the, I think the other thing sometimes is that is that people seek validation from investors as opposed to from customers. It's like, well, I've got this idea and so then they face this fork in the road where they can either go talk to 20 or 30 prospective customers or, I know, I'll put together a nine-slide deck or a 12-slide deck or whatever the right number of slides is, and I'll go try and convince some investors to invest. And the first thing the investors ask is, so who's using it? Who have you sold to? And if you haven't, then they try and sell it for you to see if you can actually sell it, right? Right. So, so I think the I think going to the VC first, unless you're in a vertical that requires that kind of funding, unless you're in a in a, in a biotech or a semiconductor, where that's the that that's just the ante to get in the game, um, I think that's a mistake. And, yeah, I mean, you want start, go ahead, go ahead. Oh no, go ahead, go ahead. No, I think the lean startup guys and and Steve Blank have been been kind of talking about that for several years now. Well, it also seems like any risk that you could remove from the table from an investor standpoint is only going to benefit you, especially if you can remove it without, you can remove it yourself. So you remove technology risk by building something that works and you remove some uh, customer adoption uh, risk because you've actually found customers and you maybe even remove a little bit of scalability risk because you figured out an equation like we put this many dollars in, in the, in these type of marketing channels and we get this much customer adoption with this much lifetime value. And the more, the further you can get along the, the better valuation you can get and probably the better reception you can get from investors, I would think, right? Cause they're just looking for the maximum risk reward ratio for themselves. So I think a couple things happen. I think a lot of people seek investment because they want a salary, and they look at the investment decision as the affirmation. And what the investor wants to hear is, how are you going to pay me back? Right. Right. I mean, we, we talk about Twitter, and we talk about a few other things where the business model is not as clear. These are kind of like very rare, low-frequency kinds of companies. And most mm. of the time, you'd like to actually have a business model that makes money, right? Well, for 99.9% of successfully bootstrap companies that actually have customers are bringing in revenue, what is the point of getting, you know, a couple of million investment? I mean, you just don't need that much. So, so I think that's where it comes in. I think, I think the reason why those companies seek investment, and some of our, our customers doing that now, is because they've got a recipe that could actually scale and use it. And it's, it's not to make a salary, it's to actually go after opportunities that are larger than organic uh, revenue can support. So basically, they're going to they're take a, a large chunk of that and put that into a marketing effort that's going to scale it laterally very quickly. Um, or, or acquire adjacent technologies that are going to... Yes, it's, it's a combination of, of, of building, building using known um, quantities. Right. What are uh, we've talked a little bit about this, but I'd like to see if you could tell us any more about what are some of the common mistakes that you see uh, among startups that you tend to advise, and maybe even more so, like what are some of the most egregious misunderstandings that uh, you're seeing that you have to dispel when you work with these startups? 
Well, most of the people that, that tend to hire us are aware of the fact that they've got a finite amount of time and, and they're aware of the possibilities of failure. Um, the kind of people that don't tend to hire us um, are, are committed to making a lot of their own mistakes as its own value, right? It's like, well, I'm, I'm, I really am, I'm, I'm going to learn this on my own, which is good, and you're going to learn that anyway. Um, I, I think you've got to figure out where you can, uh, where, where you can, you know, sometimes as they say, two hours in the library can save you a year in the lab, right? <laughs> right. So. So the trick is not so much um, the, the trick is not so much to to follow some particular path as to have somebody that can can look from a different perspective and say, look, you're 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 we offer both an emotional distance from the problem and and we know a lot of things that have worked in other situations, right? And and you know, it's unfortunate. I'm probably much better at looking at other, you know, other people's um, startups than than startups I've done on my own. Because in your own startup, you've got this tremendous amount of emotional. Um, it, it all becomes one one big thing, right? It's difficult mm-hmm. to untangle, right? Right. You've spoken of the problem of within within an enterprise, you can help uh, founders and and bootstrappers make their sale with it, make a large sale within an enterprise. What about the other problem where the issue isn't so much that, it's that they want to get in front of the eyeballs of maybe 100,000 small businesses. Do you help with that kind of thing? You know, that's, that, that is a whole other skill set, and that's not one that we, um, uh, one that we typically address. The, the, if you're really doing a low, if you're, so if, if, you're, if your long-term plan is to do credit card transactions, um, we're, we're definitely not the best firm to work with, and we don't we don't uh, chase that business. Interesting. Hey, uh, you know, under it's website, a, the physics. I mean, the physics of those markets is fundamentally different. Um, so we're working with Kent Beck on his J Unit Max launch, and that mm-hmm. product is currently priced at a hundred dollars. Um, the reason I think he's working with us is because we see. Um, Higher level offerings there that that are that we're we're not going to abandon the J Unit Max basic price for developers, but there's probably going to be team level and uh, group level offerings as well over time, and that's where I'm um, helping him go. Interesting, right? Um, on your website, you list seven questions for startups, and I was wondering if you could take us through some of those questions and you know and and explain to us why they're important to ask. So um, those questions are the are questions that that the engineering entrepreneur typically wants to answer first, and it's a way to talk about the product. So we talk about features and customer to um, to to really get clarity on um, their understanding of the product and of the market, at least who they're trying to sell to. And we try and divide features into a couple categories. Um, you know, what are the must-have features? Um, what are the nice to have features, right? And what are mm-hmm. significant features that may or may not help you differentiate? There's another category that are actually, even though they're must have, they're they're what you call anti, which is the features that A N T E that you need to get into the market, right? The same thing as a poker game, you've got to put a certain amount of money in the pot to get started. Um, that that tends to define at least the the team's conception of the roadmap. Um, 
and it's just a way to get a to get a perspective on the on the uh, business. Um, right, right. I mean, those 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 questions really came out because I found that I was it was either the conversation the entrepreneurs wanted to have, or um, I would overlook asking one or two. And so I just kind of put it out there to help structure the conversations a little more. Is this something that before you would engage with customers, you'd say, here are the questions I'm going to ask you. Maybe think about this stuff before we talk so that our conversation is more productive. Is that sort of what they're used for? Yeah. So, so, and, and, and we will ordinarily, uh, if somebody takes the time to write up a one or two sentence answer to those questions, we'll talk on the phone or meet for half an hour, an hour and go over. And that's not, that's, that's just to get acquainted. That that provides some structure to the um, conversation, as opposed to. I mean, and it's clear that we're trying to talk about ultimately selling technology as opposed to money raising or uh, other other kinds of problems they may have. We've right. also done that startup maturity checklist as a way to give people an idea of what the, all everything they've got to do to actually build a company, as opposed to complete an engineering project. Right. Right. Um. And also, you've written at least two. It looks like uh, or at least one book, or, and a, or two books, and a, so and a workbook. Have, yeah, we have three. There, there are three workbooks, and then a book of quotes for entrepreneurs. Um, okay. And the workbooks came out of a, out of a, a uh, were designed to support workshops that we do that are des- that um, help people really work on their business. The the workshops. Um, Offer a mix of kind of lecture, and then and then there's there are uh, questions that you're going to write up in the context of a of a one page plan that you're going to then execute over the next ninety days. So you leave the workshop with a a plan of attack for what you're going to do, and we we do one on um, idea to formation, which is how do you get started? That's useful for teams that have ideas that are trying to figure out. Uh, should we go forward or not, and how can we explore that most efficiently and most rapidly? Uh, we've got one about getting more customers, where you've got a few customers, and now you're really trying to, to um, you know, find early customers or find your niche. And then one on debugging your sales process, where you may be having trouble. Um, you've made some sales, but for some reason, you're not able to. You're not happy with the level of of revenue or the closing rate. Right. And now are these books that you sell or that are on Amazon or how do, how do people get access to these so, books? So, so they're normally provided in the context of a workshop. So we'll either do a custom workshop for one team or we'll, we have public workshops that we run a couple times a year and you can get a book either, either way. I think a couple of people asked me for copies of them and, um, in the United States, we've we've mailed them to folks. the the the, the book it's the the book the, the workbooks are primarily questions and templates. Um, it doesn't do you any good unless you actually take the time to answer the questions and work on it. The workshops bring two more things to that equation. Well, three, I guess. So one is um, you have a chance to interact with other entrepreneurs who are kind of at your stage. Um, Two, you have a chance to get the plan you've got critiqued. We actually do follow-up from each of the workshops. We will schedule four uh, calls with you at two weeks, four weeks, eight weeks, and six or 13 weeks so that that you're you're actually motivated not just to write down the plan but to actually execute it. So it gives you time to kind of step back, look at your business, and then execute against a plan. 
Now, this right. is not a, I mean, it's not a complex plan. It's a one-page plan, but it at least gets you some moving forward. The, the text of the workbooks is also uh, put into a custom workspace so that you and your team actually have access to it after the workshop. And it's a wiki, so you can edit it. You've got your own copy of the contents in your own wiki, and you're able to work on the plan, evolve it, and and take it from there. So that you've, it's not just you're not just writing it down on a piece of paper. Although writing it down on a piece of paper is fine, but you've got it as a way to actually use it as an ongoing planning template. What's the web address for people who want to get that? Um, so so the best way to start would be to come to a workshop, and we advertise those periodically on our website. So that's skmurphy.com. Yes, sorry, yes. What are your thoughts on writing business plans? Because there seems to be a lot of uh, talk lately about whether they're even worth the time. And, uh, you know, I mean, I guess there's a big range of like, what is a business plan? Is it this 50 page behemoth or is it something that's a few pages that you write for yourself? And what do you, what, what are your thoughts and advice on that? So, um, the problem is, is the phrase business plan has come to mean two very, very different things, right? So a business plan is a short science fiction novel presented to potential investors to promise a glorious future, right? Mm-hmm. right. That I'm not a particularly huge fan of. We don't help people with that. that that's, a, that's a different kind of sales process than we normally engage in. Oh, sorry, we, we, we help them to the extent that we help them get the traction and the customer testimonials that substantiate what's in the plan. Right. So that's that's how we help them. But an operating plan, a plan that you and a small team of folks, essentially your playbook, we're huge fans of that. And I think that it's one or two pages. It can be a couple of pages in a wiki that you can update with some revision control. That just keeps everybody on the same page. The the other advantage to writing at least a short plan is when you go to change it, you realize you're changing your plan. It forces you to say, we tried that. It didn't work. Now we're going to try this. If you if you don't take the time to at least write down a couple of key assumptions and a plan of attack, you can kind of wander in this circle. Right. 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 So I don't make a fetish of it, but I do think a small amount of writing and 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 sharing that with either other other entrepreneurs or other members of your team getting feedback is a great idea. Yeah, I, I have uh, just uh, w- one more question about that. So, in, in business plans, I guess they have what you said—the marketing plan—and part of that, I guess, is what like your competitive analysis. Um, I mean, that's that's sort of, I guess, one of the things that you want to do anyway, right? Just sort of take a take, do some due diligence and find out who's in the space and how much they're charging and how well they're doing and where they may be weak or strong. Is is that right? Um, so we don't. We tend to approach that in a very different way. Um, it, it's certainly competitive analysis is an important component. Uh, well, let's put it this way: more broadly, understanding what alternatives are available to your target customer is very important to understand. Right. Right. And competition is not always a direct kind of plug compatible replacement. It can be many things. Right, so it can be email or Excel or, as they say, as they say, your biggest competitor on the web is the back button. Right, right. So, <laughs> so it's whatever alternatives that you and and a lot of times the customer may decide to do nothing. Right. Okay. You may sure. simply not. You may not offer enough value for the perception of the risk or the cost or the changeover cost to get them to move. So, sure. so I, I'm not. I think part of what can happen if, as a startup, you start to focus too much on the competitors' websites is that you start to come up with feature lists that are way too long. 
if you talk to prospects, prospects will typically say the two things I like about X or the one thing that I think is really cool about that. Those are the features or those are the capabilities you want to pay attention to. And so often you see these laundry lists, right, that are that are just nobody cares. Right, right. All right, Justin, go for it. All right. You organized something that has the brilliant name of Bootstrapper's Breakfast. In fact, it's such a good name, it makes me hungry just saying it. <laughs> We've trademarked that one, by the way. I mean, I, I'm literally just thinking about eating a great American breakfast right now as, as I'm asking this question. But could you tell us a little bit about that and, and how we it helps had, people? We had one this morning, as a matter of fact. So, oh, so we've been doing these about five years now. It was, um, it was an effort to... Um, a couple things. One is is initially at least find uh, you know find ways to help people for no cost at all, um, so they could come to a breakfast, and and the other thing, and I think this is important, uh, a really important point is that is that um, my uncle was a psychiatrist in Oregon, and I went and lived with him for one summer. My brother and I was just kind of a summer vacation thing, and he said, you know, most of psychotherapy uh, where you're focused on a therapist relationship is not particularly effective. It's the group therapy. It's people perform to the expectations of a group, right? And as a, as a manager and now as a consultant, I really try and, and look at how do you create group standards or how pe- people tend to perform against a group's expectations. It's very difficult in a one-on-one relationship to get people to change behavior, Right. But mm. we naturally we naturally try and meet the expectations of our peers, or meet the com- commitments we make to a group, and so um, the workshops. The reason for the workshops is they're a good vehicle to actually get people to change behavior, and the breakfasts are, in a, are, are give you a chance to come and talk to other bootstrapping entrepreneurs, talk about an issue you've got, and and get a variety of perspectives on it. And sometimes you, I mean, you know, you may get three different opinions, two of which contradicted or contradictory and it's it's up to you to sort it out but at least you at least it kind of gets you unstuck from i can't figure out what to do so it's sort of like a breakfast mastermind it's a yeah, little, i was it's, gonna say yeah, yeah it, it, it's it's i i think and, and we're looking at at starting masterminds next year we don't um i think in a mastermind group the group stays the same over time. You're making commitments that get followed through. The bootstrapper breakfasts are more. You can drop in when you've got issues. Some people come frequently. Some people come infrequently. It's a little looser organization than a mastermind. We do police the topics in the sense that we really discourage sales pitches and we ask people to talk about issues related to uh, technology bootstrapping. Um, but other than that, it's, it's a kind of a mini unconference for about 90 minutes. And the- How many people go? Uh, anywhere from eight to sixteen. Sometimes we'll run. We'll run two tables. We'll have um, twenty or thirty people. Somewhere above about fifteen or sixteen, one table. It's hard to get all the way around the table and have a good conversation. The other funny thing, when we first started doing, we have a couple people come and they go. There's just not enough people here to to make this worth to make this a worthwhile networking event. And I said, well, so at the end of this hour and a half, you'll have heard from a dozen people, and you'll really know them. And, and the networking actually takes place after the breakfast, right, where now you've actually heard somebody talk a few times and and have a chance to have a real conversation. If you go to a larger group, you may hear a speaker, and you may learn a lot. You may only talk to half a dozen people, and even then only for a minute or two, right? It's hard to get to know people in the That's right. kind of the stand-up cocktail hour model. 
Well, you know, it's one thing I've just I've sort of discovered is that if I go to some kind of an event or a meetup or a conference, if I come away from that and I've made one good relationship, someone that I'm actually going to keep in touch with and have, a, and, and that, then it's a big win for me. And that's happened. If I point to each of the times I've really gone out and done something like that, um, I'm only disappointed when there were, when I didn't get a chance to really meet anyone that I was said was worth keeping in contact with. Um, so we've helped put yeah. teams together. I mean, certainly probably connected several dozen folks just in the last year. We're now running, I think 10 of these a month. We're doing, uh, seven or eight in Silicon Valley, one in Chicago, one in Minneapolis. And the moderation is volunteer. And then we charge now five bucks or 10 bucks a head. Um, and that pays for a coordinator to do name tags and to kind of um, free up the moderator's time to um, make sure the conversation moves smoothly. And in, you said in terms of uh, California, you said they're all up in the, the valley, right? There's nothing down here in L.A.? We, there's nothing in Los Angeles. We, we, we'd ran, we've run some in uh, San Diego that are currently on hiatus. Um, okay. Maybe, have, maybe someone listening to the show um, living in Los Angeles might like to start that. Uh, so, Jason, um, I, I'm thinking we should get on to some of the more Apic Night-specific stuff. Yeah, well, that would be uh, fun. So, Sean, you you suggested that we, we might discuss Apignite, that you had some ideas, and maybe use that as sort of a mini case study on, um, for our listeners. Um, so I explained to you the essence of what Apignite is um, before, the, before the, uh, the interview. So, just, so you have a very brief, Why don't we just very briefly, just who's the, um, who is the target customer? Who's the customer for the Apignite? Okay. Well, yeah. And I'll, okay, I'll explain that. And also, just for any of our listeners of who who haven't listened to past episodes and aren't really sure what Epignite is, Epignite is a web app that allows you to build data-driven web applications very rapidly with just point and click, essentially using um, a series of wizards or, you know, just pointing and clicking, right? It's not like flow, di- it's not coding, it's not using flow diagramming, it's really, really simple. And it, so that's essentially what AppIgnite is. Um, and the, I, I, in my mind, I have sort of two basic categories of, uh, of, of target customer. The one would be um, internal to organizations. So if if an organization needed any number of, say, productivity applications, um, that would be one uh, example customer. So... And sort of the, the the contrived example I've used before to explain it is, say, you're an HR and you're trying to uh, facilitate an interview process for a variety of candidates that need to go through a series of phone and in-person interviews, and you're trying to coordinate all this. Maybe you have two or three people in HR that need to keep an eye on the process. You need other people who might need some access to it and need to be able to provide to in, to be able to review feedback and edit feedback and approve things. So. Someone might normally do that with, say, a spreadsheet and a set of emails, which would be kind of a nightmare. And they might say, okay, you know, I'm actually going to use, I, I wish I had an, an application for this, but getting something built internally or outsourcing it might just be beyond, you know, the, the resources available to them. Now, the other potential market would be an external application. So you have, you know, some company or some individuals have an idea for an app that they want to build, that they want to either market and charge money for or whatever. And let's say, they, let's say, you know, just to come up with a stupid example, it's like they have an idea for yet another project management application. They're going to compete okay. with Basecamp. And they're like, okay. okay, I have some apps, I have some ideas for this. 
or maybe something like Get Satisfaction, a feedback app. And they're like, okay, I like user voice, I like Get Satisfaction, but it's still wrong. There's some workflow that's wrong, and they're targeting it wrong way. I want to build an application, and um, but I don't want to go. I don't have a technology co-founder yet, and I don't want to outsource it and, and spend twenty or thirty thousand dollars for some you know Rails development company to build it. I want to build it, or at least most of it, myself, and it would allow them to point and click and create most of it. Maybe get a designer, pay a few hundred dollars to put a really pretty face on it, and all of a sudden, presto, they got a working first version that they could then go to a developer if they wanted a few custom you know functions written that do some you know that that cook into some other services or whatever. So that would be a yet another sort of demographic. Okay. So um, what is the output? The output would be two, two things. So I'm thinking, one, we, we would host the application. So you would build it and you would run it. Like, say, on WordPress.com, you can create your own blog and you can host your blog on WordPress.com, just like you mm-hmm. can Posters for Blogger. But also, for internal applications, you can export the entire application. So maybe export it as a zipped-up directory or something like that where they can go and then just say, unzip, and maybe run a script that creates the database structure on, on MySQL and creates a directory with all, the, with all of the files, and they have an instant application. So I've got I've got MySQL and then I've got some other kind of code. Is it Ruby? Is it Perl? Is it PHP? Oh yeah. So for starters, it's PHP. So the first version of the output was is a MySQL database and a directory of you know PHP code, right? Okay. So and that's but, and that's fully standalone. In other words, I could stop paying you. So do I have to use your hosting or can I can I take it somewhere else? No, okay, so my plan is this. I mean, I've kind of gone back and forth on this, but I think my plan is that we would allow you to export it and run it because I think a lot of organizations are going to want to run their stuff internally. And then, of course, they can always go in and, and, and mess with the code and override stuff and do whatever they wanted to do. But the thought is, okay, even if you exported it and you said, okay, well, I'm going to pay for your service for one month, I'm going to build my application, then I'm going to discontinue the service. And I would say, well, that, that would suck for me. But the reality is, if you want to make any change, you want to add a couple fields, you want to add a new record type, you want to change some permissions, I mean, whatever you're paying for us for a monthly account is going to be less expensive than having to pay a developer for an hour or two to go in and make those changes manually. Okay. So, that's so, so this sounds like an Intuit QuickBase competitor, as an example. It's, yeah. So Intuit QuickBase, based on the research I did initially a year, year and a half ago, charges a lot of money. It's like $60 a user per month to develop an internal application. Um, so I think that's going to be very expensive for smaller organizations. Um, you may not be able to want to spend that kind of money. But then, yeah, so it would compete directly with that for against internal applications. But then also... Um, for external applications, that's gonna that pricing isn't gonna work at all. So my thought is also kind of like in the whole um, was it Thomas Thurston's uh, be worse and cheaper, but always getting better. So that's mm-hmm. how I would compare up against Quick QuickBase that initially probably wouldn't have some of the sophistication and stuff that QuickBase, which has been around for years, but it would be much much cheaper. And of course, we have a whole other demographic external applications. Sean, just just quickly, do you do you think that it's a correct strategy to follow those two different things? One. An internal business, you know, go after internal businesses, and number two, go after external website builders. It's two different markets. It's two different products. It's two different products and two different businesses, isn't it? That's what I was thinking. Yeah. So, so we like to see people compete on pain. Okay. Not on price. So, so the question. So, one of the things I hear you saying here is that you're you're very committed to being a price leader, right? Okay. And that's okay, but um. I'm trying to understand who's in who's in a lot of pain right now, and and let's say that let's just say your price point is 
acceptable, that's fine. But who's who's in a lot of pain in terms of the available alternatives simply are not working for them? Right. Well, the, the first example I'll give is for the internal application. So I actually had a listener contact me who said that he works for a web dev group within a, a, a very large billion-dollar company. And they have about 12 people in their web dev group alone. And he said they just get completely overwhelmed with being able to build any of the internal applications. Okay, so stop right there. So, okay. so, I, I, so what I want to point out to you is that is a third kind of user than the first two you outlined. Okay. And this may actually be a better market for you. So what you've, what you've really got is you've got a guy bombarded with half-ass application requests from a variety of people inside of this large company, and he can't tell which of those of internal applications is actually going to get users. A lot of people have an idea for an application they can use, but they can't figure out how to get other people to use that same application. Even take your HR tracking thing as an example. Okay. Right. Okay. So, so what this allows the web dev guy to do is to say, fine, in two hours or four hours or one hour or whatever, I'm going to sit down with you. You're going to have an application that you and five guys can use. Mm-hmm. And, and that allows him to sort of these hundred requests, which six are actually going to gain traction over the next three months. Because right. the alternative is to go and spend three months developing an application that no one uses or very few people. Is it a mistake to, just, just to be clear, because I'm, I'm not sure I've got the answer to this, is it a mistake for Jason to pursue these three different things that we've just described? I don't think it's a mistake from a market exploration point of view to have conversations with 20 or 30 people of each flavor, right? And you've got three flavors there, right? Yeah. My suspicion is, is this is going to look a little bit like the WordPress template market where... Um, it actually helps people. In other words, this is taking care of what to the developer looks like non-value-add programming, right? It's taking care of a whole bunch of basic stuff, allowing them to focus on some more important issues, either 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 more important applications in the company that require some kind of scaling question or uh, keeps a lot of people in, in other departments happy that, that they can then track usage and come back and automate on a second or third pass. So if he talks to those three flavors and then one comes up trumps, does he then focus on that one for the next few years? Is that the way it works or how does that work? Well, I'm willing to pay him, right? I mean, I would see who's actually able to get budget to the, the problem. The, one of the problems what you're outlining is if it's not a very important problem, the person may or may not be able to get budget, right? Sure. And, and the more you're selling to, um, uh, the business people or the the um, the less sophisticated users, you've got this you've got this support burden which is out of scale with what you're charging them. Right. So, so the, the web dev calls. group really the web dev group might really understand the value add because they realize how many hours that of work I'm removing from their plate. Not, not only that, but they're motivated to actually answer the first level of support questions on the application for you. Right. Because their alternative, if it falls through and it fails, that same guy is going to be asking those questions of the web dev group or is going to be somehow able to, to, to get to him inside of the organization. 
that makes a lot of sense. Right. That does make a lot of sense. In fact, well, you know, obviously I haven't done a whole, you know, really any customer exploration at this point. It was more like just kind of building, you know, what I imagined. And I was contacted by, I guess, the, the, that one flavor of, of uh, potential customer. And the more I thought of it, I'm like, wow, that really could make the most sense because I, w- I would be able to have a high bandwidth conversation with these users. They really understand what the application could do and has the potential to do and what kind of value it adds for them. Whereas if you work directly with business customers, they might have a lot of really strange misconceptions about what is possible and what kind of time frame. You've also got, I mean, just naturally, just out of the box, you've also got a lot of um, coherence with those people because you're like that kind of a person. Well, you, could, you, you probably could add a zero to the price selling to the business guys, maybe even two. To the business users as opposed to the internal web developers at the businesses? Yes, because your value is much higher. They'll pay you for those conversations. Oh, so, so you're saying, sorry, I, I think I misunderstood. So you're saying if Jason goes directly to the business to the business guys, skips out the web dev guys, then it's like a thousand bucks a month kind of price range. If Potentially, web, yeah. I mean, I mean guys, that, would, that would be a sort to look at. Would be, would be, can you find some business users that have important business problems Right. The other thing here, I think there's a problem. There's a there's a question between internet facing and essentially a private extranet. Yeah. So I, I just want a little clarification because I'm definitely confused. So in my mind, there are three there are three demographics. There's people who are startups or companies that are trying to create some internal external application. There is the business user within a large organization that is the one that initiates the conversation about Epic Night and wants to build something to solve their problem or their department mm-hmm. group's problem. And there is a third person, a third demographic, which is the internal IT staff, the internal development staff that's being del- deluged by productivity app request within an organization that says, hey, maybe Epic Night can get these things out the door and off our back so we can focus on our main thread of development. And you're saying focus on demographic two, which is the business users within large organizations. No, that that no, would- no, no. Okay. no, no. I think, I think you've got to figure out where you can get traction. My point is your price point may be different for those three guys. Yeah, okay. he's, he's, he's saying talk to all three, all three customers, find out where you get traction and where you get the fastest business, and then focus on that one. But but basically, you may you may need a lot less customers if you if it's option number two. But but it just depends how easy it is to get traction on that. Right, right. And I'm not dis- I'm not disputing the affinity argument that you were making that it may be easier to get traction at lower dollars with the web dev. Right. right. The other thing is is the outsourcers may want to use this as a jumpstart for projects where they where so I think the guys that are going to be hardest are going to be the startups that are going to do an externally facing scalable web app. Yeah, me too. I think I've always I've always thought there was an issue with that like that 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 someone would use Epic Night to actually build their business on. That to me that there was issues, a what whole about, bunch of issues. What about that. this? There's actually a fourth group that I was thinking about too. Uh, a, a few of our listeners have contacted, or I said, written comments on our blog, on our blog or sent me emails about Epic Night, and they said, and they are independent consultants or they have a consulting firm and this would allow them to build uh, solutions for clients much more quickly. So they could still charge a fairly high price for the development, but maybe cut down their development time by a factor of 10 or 20 and then try a few customized things and they still provide a solution to their customers. So I think that, I think that's essentially a variant on the web dev guy, only he's Mm -hmm. externally facing the difference as well is in both cases, they're essentially pricing to result. 
Right. Right. In other words, if you where the outsourcer may fail is so so it's got to be where somebody is able to price to the result at some level, as opposed to right. price to the hour. Because if you're taking hours out of the equation and I charge for hours, I'll never use your product. Right. Right. And that right. happens. There's a lot of productivity applications that founder because they essentially go to people that are locked into this labor theory of value. I create value by selling hours as opposed to delivering results. Right. right. Um, so, but if, if, yeah, but I guess a lot of these external developers will say, hey, you know, I'll build, I build an application, I'll do a fixed bid, I'll build it for five or $10,000. And it that turns out they can. a very important qualifying question right up front. Do you do fixed bid projects? Right. If the answer is yes, then they're more likely to be in your target customer set than no. The other thing is, right. is that those kind of developers, more often than not, just like you and just like me, uh, Jason, already have frameworks that help them do their work faster. Yeah, but this is, this is, this is, a, uh, yeah, it's still, this is an order of magnitude. I mean, you know, I could sit there and design an application in minutes. It's going to take you days or weeks, even with your super fast. So, so There's no one, one thought. One, one, so if you, let's say you really were a client of ours, right? What I would say is okay. fine, go build 10. Right. Consult initially, charge for the result, and figure out what's involved with that. Right. Because so you're saying act, act as a consultant, basically eat your own dog food. Sell the, sell the result. Initially, just sell the result. And yeah, this in happens fact, in, a whole bunch of, in a whole bunch of ways. That's the way we try and get people to start. Sell the result. Interesting. Because a, a variation of that is I was thinking of just sort of demonstrating the power of it and getting some sort of awareness on, on uh, Hacker News, for instance, was, you know, 37 Signals released a sort of uh, a blog post. They wrote a blog post about an internal application they built called Iterations, which allowed them internally to – basically, you could write up like, hey, here's a feature or an adjustment or, or something we need to make to one of our products. And then other internal people to the organization could comment on it or say, give a thumbs up, yeah, I agree, or also, I would like to work on that potential iteration. And that's pretty much all the app did, but it, they, they said this was such a useful thing to them. And I thought, you know what, I could generate that thing. We release a public version and just to sort of demonstrate the power, say, here you go, generated by AppIgnite, you know, our version of iterations. But what you're saying is go the next step further, build applications, maybe even sell them. And, yes. Um, yes. Right. Well, he, do you mean use it as part of his consulting practice? No, so I mean sell take, the results. Oh, okay. So basically start a couple of, start a couple of, uh, external facing websites, which is kind of like the AnyFoo thing we were talking about, Jason, a few different concepts. Yeah, we had some ideas. I mean, one of the reasons that I wanted to start this, uh, this idea, uh, Sean, is that you know, I have you know, any number of ideas for these types of uh, web apps in a week. And I'm, but a lot of them, I'm like, you know, I wouldn't mind spending a few days on something or whatever, but I can't develop three months to getting something up like this, or even a few weeks. So I wish I had a tool that would allow to to rapidly accelerate this process. So in a sense, that was what I was building AppIgnite for. It's like, hey, even if nobody in the world except me used AppIgnite, great. Now I'm infinitely more productive. I could launch 10, app, uh, 10 20 uh, products a year as opposed to one. Right, and what we're looking at is the natural continu continuation of the curve we were talking about earlier, where technology risk essentially for web apps is going to zero. Right. In other words, th th there's this kind of mental inertia that says there's some value in being able to write that code, you know, from scratch. And increasingly, right. the reality, I mean, it's a little bit, I mean, this has happened in hardware, Um 
where people would design state machines by hand and now you use tools to do it or people that would that would hand place and hand route gatorades that are now it's all automated so it's the same same things happening in in code there's um so the the the, the question the real question is haven't ha, if you could have the application in 10 sec so if you could think of the application and have it 10 seconds later right, right. what's the real problem you're trying to solve mm-hmm. and it's not developing the application Mm-hmm. At that point, it's finding a market for it, right? Right, right. And so, and so that's at, at some level. Then you want to you want to look for people that know that they have a market for what they can do and are held back by the technology piece. Right. And that sounds to me more like startups that are two business guys or business users and companies. Right. Well, that's right. So, so those just 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 talking about that for a quick second, right? The 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 price point of that could actually be pretty high even yes. though it was for even though it was for a startup because those guys typically are going to spend 250,000 to get something so there's, a, there's a thing so when we talk about the status quo there's this term of art that's called batna best alternative to a negotiated agreement so the question is what are they going to do what what if they if they don't if they're not aware of apignite what are they going to do instead that's right. They're going to either a raise money or spend their own money to hire a, a freelancer, developer, or some consulting firm, um, whether overseas or, or or domestic. Or they're going to search for a technical co-founder. And some people are lucky enough to know a technical co-founder, but a lot of them aren't. A lot of people have ideas, but they're like, you know, I just don't know anybody. How the hell am I going to make okay. some happen? So let's let's assume the technical co-founder that's unpaid is out. Just right. hypothetically, all right. So what's the what's the cost to them of of uh, what's what's the cost of their next best alternative? Tens, ten, fifty thousand to two hundred fifty thousand. Right. Right. Now, so if I said to you, Jason, I'd like to sell you a car, and the car costs four hundred dollars, would you like to buy that car? Well, it depends on the kind of quality of the car, I guess. <laughs> right, right. But yeah. immediately, immediately, you have a question about the value of that car because the car normally costs even a crappy car, five or 10 grand, right? Right, Much yeah. less a new car. So, so you're a guy that says, I've got this thing which is just like a new car and it only costs $400, right? Right, yeah. I, I was just thinking that. I mean, do you want to get a bargain on your laser eye surgery? Would you like to pay $2 for laser no, eye surgery? No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't, and, right? And so, so for, example, if, if for example, if you came out and said, it, it's, it's 10000 that actually feels a lot more comforting. <laughs> yes, because you're trying to use price as a hammer to knock down their perception of risk, and it only works for a certain amount of the risk that they can foresee. Right. So you're saying, I'm just going to cut the price until risk goes to zero. And strangely, that curve turns around and starts to go back up. You know, I only pay $2 for my laser eye surgery. Am I a genius or a fool? Yeah, right, right. It's true. And and Jason, let's say let's say for example, you charge something like ten thousand dollars, just just to, okay. as an example for one of these guys to do, then you would be able to pay a lot more personal attention to each customer. You know, right? And I you can ensure really, that they're a success. Exactly. You could ensure that they're a success. You could start. You could basically work for the next year on building twenty customers' products with them. And make right. a measly two hundred grand, which I know is not a lot of money to you or I, but still, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying to start to start off your company, and then as as that year goes by, it becomes more, you know, what you do becomes more and more automated and refined, and then a year later, you can scale that, you know. If you have if you have five or ten testimonials from real guys who are in production, 
you can now cut price because you have substantiation of your value. Right. So when you when you started like that, unless you're doing business with people you've done business with for it's 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 the, the pricing the pricing's more complex than I'm outlining. My only point is is a lot of engineers tend to want to cut price to where they go, well, it'll be a no brainer. And especially if it's if it's a critical business decision or a critical business need. Price is used as a proxy for risk and for reliability. And in other words, we never use in our in our business products that are free, because right. if I have a customer in a using a product that's free as a part of service delivery and something goes wrong, and I have no service level agreement, they're they're not really interested that I got a bargain on this mailing list manager. Or I got a bargain on this thing or that thing. All they know is I put a dent in their revenue stream, and they're not happy about it. Right. I think the same thing here is they don't. This is not an application that they want to bargain on. They may want it to be cost effective, cost competitive, however you want to talk about it. But is this well, because them? yeah, absolutely. Well, that's very interesting. I hadn't really thought about this. No, because it's, it's totally there's, interesting. There's two things that you're compressing with Epicnet. You're compressing potentially price, even if it is expensive, it could still be cheaper, as you said, cost competitive. But you're compressing time. So, would have taken months can be done almost immediately. Which is another big advantage because, as we talk, you know, as we talk about a number of times on the show, is that your how quickly you can execute and learn um, is that much. It reduces your risk that you're going to fail ultimately, right? No, so, so l- let me just tell a story from my youth, right? So, when when I was working at Semiconductors doing gate arrays, we um, we built a gate array compiler because it, it, it solved a whole bunch of problems that we otherwise had to model by hand. One of the side effects was that it put this terrible stress on the marketing people. So the marketing guys didn't quite know what they needed. They came and they said, we'd like an array that looks like this and um, let us know when you're done. And, right. and they hadn't put much thought into it. So, so we gave them two hours, came back, goes, okay, it's done. Now what do we do? And they go, how can it be done? It's been compiled. Well, we're not sure if that's the right thing. I go, yeah, do you really want to go? Back then, it was a couple thousand dollars. I don't know what masks were. Let's say $20,000 for a mask set, right? But still, mm-hmm. it was going to be a visible failure. Well, don't build that yet. Okay, well, then are we wasting your time or are you wasting ours, right? So mm-hmm. so by compressing the application development time effectively to Epsilon, I mean, to some mm-hmm. very tiny quantity, right? And that's and that's why the to some extent that's why the web dev guy wants it is he wants to use the full armamentarium of his development skills against a project that's actually going to get users in scale, right? right? So what you've got here to to borrow the lean startup phraseology is an MVP generator, right? Yes, very much so. So so that's not a sixty. I mean, at the until somebody comes up with a second one. That's not necessarily. Um, I mean, the the price point's a little tricky, but but mm-hmm. you might want to think about different taking the same application by different names and attacking different markets, right? Right. So you can experiment with different type of pricing structures. Well, no, the, the, the value may be higher for different kinds of users. Right. Right. I'm going to date myself again, right? But when you used to go buy the double-sided, double-density, so when when you used to go, so the floppy floppy disks, I don't, I think they're still in museums somewhere, right? I mean, they essentially <laughs> made one kind of floppy disk. They made double-sided, dual-density, right? Right. But some were labeled double-sided, single-density, or whatever. There were essentially they relabeled it four times, 
but from right. a manufacturing point of view, it was easy just to do one run, right? And then the way the way it was packaged disabled or enabled the features, right? When we were at Cisco, we we had a box that had X number of ports on. I think it was a four port box. And somebody said we need a two port box. There's a mar- there's a market that's emerging right now. So they say okay. Spin the sheet metal, pull the connector off, and we have a two-port box in a month that will then cost reduce over the next year if we can grab that market, right? So I think you've got the same thing here. You may have you, – you, you, you've got this engine. You can take a couple different places. During, during my career, I've met a lot of entrepreneurs who have, like, an idea that's going to cost a quarter of a million to half a million to develop. Right. But they have a budget of about twenty thousand. <laughs> right. That's that's very common, and so um, I think that's a, that's a lot of money on the table. And, and basically, what what they end up doing is just not doing their project because they end up talking to engineers and they're saying, "Look, there's no way you're going to get that done." So then they just go back to the back to the grindstone and try and earn more money. Well, or sure. or you say, "Look, I work for a percentage of revenue." That's right. right. I want okay. five grand, and I want twenty percent of the revenue for the first year. Right. Well, you know, we had an interesting conversation with David Cancel of Performable uh, about a month or so ago. And one thing he said, they started their, there is they Performable is an analytics um, platform. And they initially were charging, I don't know, something like $30 a month at their entry level when they had a few different plans. But they ended up raising that uh, a number of times to up to $200 um, because they found that not only were, would they make more money, but they got better customers. So that the, the people who are only willing to pay the entry fee of 30 or $50 were much higher maintenance um, customers. They had much, they had re- relatively speaking, unrealistic expectations. Um, they need more handholding. Um, they were just more, more difficult where the people who were willing to pay more underst- had a little more sophisticated understanding of you know, what software could, could do and that there would be issues and that things would take a little bit of time to resolve. And it wasn't the only thing on their plate that they had other things going on as well. So they didn't need to have it necessarily fixed in, in three hours. Um, and I'm sort of thinking that, you know, higher priced, the other additional benefit of a higher priced item would be that I'd have fewer customers that would have be a little easier to deal with. And as a small company, it would reduce my customer support burden and I could spend more time on the product itself. What are yeah. your thoughts on that? Well, so here again, so you have to be careful because I don't do, I don't, I don't do the $60 a month pricing model. So the answer you're going to get from me is going to drive you up market, right? I'm not saying that a market sure. doesn't exist, but so I'm going to tell you what I know, which is to, which is to move up market. That may or may not be the best answer overall, but if you say you're bootstrapping, it's a higher probability of getting to break even, then right so so what you're trading is the lottery ticket at some level for the umpty ump million dollar market for at least being around next year with some amount of revenue you can so you're not for i mean you can always come down and price or rebrand it or take the same thing and do something else with it right yeah it's, yeah my, it's, i mean my uh, i'm sorry con no i I'm, I'm just being candid in terms of the limits of my advice, right? Yeah, well, that's that's fine, you know, because my my goal is, you know, I don't I don't I don't need to to have the Google acquisition. You know, I, I tried it once and it, and it almost worked out and it didn't. So it was a sort of binary, right? Is either worth nothing or was worth a ton. And I'm much more content at this point of saying, hey, can I 
get out of consulting to where I have something that replaces that income and then maybe doubles or triples it or quadruples it over the next, you know, three or four years. Um, you know, and, and that's not a huge company and I would, I have no problem growing something smaller. So that's more my focus is like how quickly can I get off the, um, freelance consulting treadmill and, and have a product that I can just focus my attention on. Well, well, it's also the case that a year from now, if you have 10 or 20 customers, you can, you can revisit. I mean, I mean, you can grow an organization. I mean, into its quick base, it's, it's, they're making some money with that. Oh yeah. They're making hundreds of millions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so, so if you're asking me to, so the, the question is not, does a market exist for this problem? Right. Right. The answer is absolutely yes. Right. You're trying to segment an existing market. Right. 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 And so yeah, that that I mean, I don't know if that answers your question or not. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, I was just more or less making a statement that, yeah, I'm totally fine with sort of grinding it out with, you know, a fewer customers and actually earning money from those as opposed to like giving something cheap, trying to get visibility and, and getting some kind of, you know, like exponential lottery ticket, which is always seems like it just seems like it's lower probability. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 public. The reason why it's so newsworthy is because it's so rare. I have three a wife and a mortgage and three kids, right? So like my my appetite for for failure, for risk that could potentially, you know, have this thing flame out is very low. Like I want this to be high probability success. Like just like I know consulting is high probably pretty high probability success. This is a little lower than consulting, but I fear I'm going to build something that's going to accelerate this process. So that's kind of how I sh- I look at it. Uh, I was just going to say that we're we're 1 hour 37 into it. So um we should think about wrapping this up, Jason. If you've got any kind of final, yeah. Well, questions. let me let me let Justin. Uh, I'm let me let uh, Sean answer that. He was going to respond to that. Sure. Yeah. No, and I think there are two peaks of entrepreneurship, right? There's there's a peak in the 20s and a peak in the 40s, and mm-hmm. the kind of folks we tend to work with have got industry experience. They tend to be in that second peak, and they've experienced failure. And it's not that they're afraid of it, but um, they're willing to take. They understand that that making a half a million or a quarter million or a million or two million dollars a year will change their life enough that making ten or twenty million doesn't necessarily make their lives ten times as sweet. I mean, when I was at Cisco in that time frame, I watched a lot of people become multi-million and ten million and richer, right? Right. And not all those people were particularly happy. That that may surprise a lot of people that read TechCrunch, but but. Um, Divorce lawyers made a very good living in the mid '90s at Cisco, as an example. I mean, it, making. I mean, the, I mean, you mentioned your kids, you mentioned your wife. You're you're looking at this thing in balance, in a way that that I think sometimes the 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 trade press focuses on you know money or or pure, that's the only thing to care about, right? Yeah, I, I mean, don't think it works that way. Yeah, because you're right. When you get in your 40s or you know whatever, and you have a family and you know, for me, it's like, look, I don't want to have to worry about retirement, saving retirement. I don't have to worry about paying for college. I don't have to worry about, you know, you know, we, you know, I want to be able to, I think we have three kids. We need a little bigger house and I don't want to have to move to Ohio to afford one, you know, and I, I want to be, have a little more freedom and flexibility. We want to take a trip. So none of that costs a ton of money, but it costs more than what I'm making as a consultant and I need to move to the next level. And so this is, this is how I'm thinking about it. Whether I make $20 million or 50, you know, I don't, you know, whatever. I mean, that's it doesn't, like it doesn't preclude fantasy. it. It just yeah. it doesn't preclude it. It doesn't mean that you're on a five year venture shot clock of of right. you know, get bigger, go home. 
Exactly. Exactly. I, yeah. Exactly. So that's that's how I'm looking at. And I think I think your idea of focusing up market, focusing on a higher priced customer, is probably a better um, a better approach for me, at least. I think. Over every mm. night. That's that's been a bit of a revelation. Very interesting. Well, um, Sean, I'd like to thank you for coming on the show. It's been really great talking to you. You've, you've really uh, added some um, really interesting insights into uh, the conversation for us. Really appreciate you taking the time. No, I'm, I, I was very delighted to be invited. I th- it was, uh, I, I'm impressed with, both, with what both of you guys have accomplished, each in your own way, and, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. All right. That's a wrap. We're out. <laughs>